This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so like many, many people, I was watching last night as they unveiled the brackets. I don't know if you were glued to your screen that would be no. so much, but uh, a lot of people were. I know, it's a big deal. Monday morning after Sunday selection, selection Sunday, everybody starts to figure out who the upsets are going to be. And in this age of data, it becomes that more important to try and get any edge you can to win that office pool, especially including, now that betting's legal. Including taking a class in college. Absolutely. Tim Chartier is here with us. He is professor of mathematics and computer science down at Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. Tim, great to have you with us. And where was this class when I was in college? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe data wasn't as prevalent at that time. <laughs> well, clearly that's what's going on. So, so walk us through it. So how do you – I feel like this is uh, a way to get kids to kind of eat their spinach. You're using something that they understand <laughs> yeah. to teach yeah. them about math. But, but help us understand in all seriousness how you model something and how you use that, those skills uh, to unlock a bracket. Sure. Well, there's two parts to the algorithm. The one – adapt method, methods used for the bowl championship series back when two of the methods that were used used linear systems, so like x plus y equal 5, x minus 2y equal 10. But rather than having two equations and two unknowns, the unknowns are the ratings of the teams. So there's 350 equations and 350 unknowns, which gives you that strength of schedule. So it isn't just that you win, it's who you win right. against. And but once you put that in, the part that makes our method uh, different than just the, the bowl championship series methods is that you can put in weighting. So you can say, well, rather than everything being one win and one loss, I'm going to say it's more important if you can win on the road. So it's not just that you're winning on the road, but that you can beat good teams on the road. And then you can also do it with time and say, for instance, maybe the last quarter of the season or the last half of the season is worth more. So in the same way, you can say it's worth like one and a half games to win in the last half of the season and also away. And that's what enables people to create their own personal brackets rather than simply looking on the brackets online that everyone can look at. So how successful is it? We've been very successful. It, the methods do vary because of the fact that they're online now, and so people can make all kinds of choices. But last year, one of my students was in beat more than 95% of the over 15 million brackets on ESPN. The year before, there was a high schooler that actually landed. ESPN said it was in the 100th percentile, which means they rounded up because she didn't win. <laughs> right, exactly. Oops. There was oh, well. at least 0.1% that beat her, apparently. <laughs> exactly. It was really funny when I learned that. And then, But the methods are easy to use, and it does, as you pointed out, Jason, it allows kids to get involved in math that may otherwise not be as excited. So tomorrow at Davidson, I'll have 400 kids coming to learn how to use these methods 
to, for some of them, see math in sports, but for others who enjoy the math, use math to finally be able to talk some sports. So it works both ways. So I wonder how people who don't know as much about basketball do versus people who do know a lot about basketball, because in every office pool, there's always that person who says, I don't really watch sports, and then they win. <laughs> and the people who are, you know, diehard ACC fans or Big Ten fans like, want to murder that person because they're like, they don't know anything about this, and yet they're winning the whole pool. So in, in your estimation or in your experience, uh, how, do, how do the jocks do versus the nons? <laughs> Well, it actually works out kind of that way, which is funny that you prefaced it that way, because often the people who don't know sports as well often do well. But the important part is they show their models to people who do know sports. Right. If you know. Oh, nothing, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They do have to show it to people because otherwise they can just get anything and they don't know what to do with it. Well, it's like investing, right? Like having your formula, your algorithm, whatever, and just ignoring all the static around you, right? Or not letting kind of your emotional reaction to the trade get involved. And so so for someone who doesn't really know much about sports, they just kind of plow ahead with their formulas. Yeah, exactly. And what happens down here is somebody, for instance, will get Duke winning, and they just can't handle that. So they'll just change their whole model. Yeah. just to be sure that Duke doesn't win. <laughs> and that doesn't always work out real well. And so, but exactly, that's a, it, having that combination of someone to help you with the domain knowledge, but then also just detaching yourself from your emotions usually helps. Duke, the New York Yankees of college basketball, <laughs> everyone. We, we do this, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it later in the show, we do this charity brackets uh, tournament here, uh, Tim, at Bloomberg, and I just know I'm waiting for all the brackets to come in, and there are people who are going to do exactly what you say. They they know in their heart, or they know based on the numbers, that Duke is probably going to win, but yeah. they just can't they can't handle it, you know, including our chairman, who's a UNC uh, graduate. So he, he, he could never do it because he wouldn't be able to, you know, look at his uh, his fellow his fellow alum. I do want to ask you, because obviously we're talking about March Madness because it's top of mind. But as we alluded to at the top, analytics data is so much a part of this. Carol and I were uh, down at the NBA All-Star Weekend down near you in Charlotte uh, just a, uh, a month or so ago. And the data element is is just huge. Tell us about some of the other work that you and your team have done with with sports outside of College Hoop. Yeah, so I lead a sports analytics group at Davidson, and we began with four students five years ago, and we're now seventy. So it's it's not a class, and it's there's there's no pay and no credit. It's just like a club. And we support men and women's basketball, volleyball, football, swimming, and baseball, and soccer with analytics to help the coaching staff. And given our success in that, we've worked with NBA teams, NFL teams, NASCAR because of where we are, and then also fantasy sites as well. Right now, we've just begun helping the U.S. Olympic Committee as well. So data is all over, and it really can give people an edge. Well, and then let's just throw in the whole online betting side of it and gambling, right? We just think about, you know, how that is becoming even a bigger deal for folks, just even the access to data and being able to kind of manipulate it and and work with it. Yeah, and that's one of the big things, like the U.S. Olympic Committee, one of the main parts they're interested in in our work is our ability to get data. Mm. Even though they're very interested in our analytics, part of the analytics is just getting the data. And so our computer science 
department, which it, I'm in a department of math and computer science, it's the computer scientists that are part of this as well. So it's both sides of the same coin that we're, that we're all taking part in. Tim Chartier is professor of mathematics and computer science down at Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. Check out his website. It's March Mathness. That's March M A T H Ness. Dot Davidson. Edu. I know I'm going to be using it because I've got to fill out a bracket. And as we mentioned, Carol and I mm-hmm. very closely uh, following the tournament because brackets for a cause. We've got Great. almost fifty. Ballers, you know, I you like when I say that. Men, women. Um, men and women pledging to charity. The winner, all that money is going to go to their charity. So we'll be bringing you up to date on that as the tournament continues. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it you just vibing out a little bit. Well, to we the all want to. Well, we all want to know where the Fed will go. Certainly, with that Fed meeting uh, on Wednesday, the second point, uh, second meeting of the year, because it has implications for the fixed income world, and that's where we want to go into. Uh, with us is Janelle Woodward, a president. Uh, she is president, I should say, a fixed income and senior portfolio manager at BMO Global Asset Management, based in Miami. In our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to see you again. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit about what you are anticipating from the Fed and what it might mean in terms of fixed income investing. Yeah, I think that this meeting is definitely widely anticipated. You know, I think going into it, um, I think what everybody is watching and looking for is what does the Fed mean by patience? If we go back to December... Are you serious <laughs> that we need to like... <laughs> Seriously? But if we look at it, I think what's so interesting is it's really been the communication around the releases being far from neutral, close to neutral, now we're patient. I think this is what markets are really concerned about. So I think it, it's not about what they do. I think it's off the, an increase is off the table, but it's really about what is guidance look like? Do we go down from two to one? What are we doing with the balance sheet? This is what markets are going to be watching. And what do you think? I mean, as you sit with your team, what are people expecting? And therefore, and and based on that, how do you invest in this market? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think if you look at the markets, I think the anticipation is that the next move is actually going to be a cut, not an increase. But I think when we step back and we look at the data... Isn't, hold on one second. Isn't that incredible? Like, that is incredible right. given where we were three or four it months is, ago. It is. Yeah. And at one point, we were thinking about four increases in 2019. So we've really come far from is that. Is any of that logical? Those are extremes. Well, there is definitely a logic to it. So it's not just about economic data. It's also about financial conditions. It's about the consumer. Um, It's about asset prices. And I think that's what the Fed was considering in December. Um, But certainly when we look at where are financial conditions today, what does the economic data look like? It also says... in our, from where we said that probably a cut is not the next action, mm-hmm. we still think that there is a potential they could increase one more time in 2019. How do you invest in that kind of an environment? Like if you think about where we were in December, we're only mid-March, <laughs> and the swing that we've, uh, we've kind of gotten in terms of Fed temperament, sentiment, you know, what they've been putting, putting out there, how do you as a fixed income investor, someone who's got a de- de- determined strategy, how do you figure it out? Yeah, I think we're, we're definitely favoring staying a little bit shorter uh, right now. How but, short? Uh, modestly shorter. Like a day? No, no. I mean, I think, look, we can look at December and we can say what happens, and there's definitely some geopolitical risks. What happens when that when that comes into the market and there's a flight to quality? But we continue to like high-quality credit assets in here. Triple B segment in particular, we've certainly seen 
seen some spread compression, but we like that yield sitting about 4%, and we think it makes a lot of sense in the context of portfolios. And geopolitically, what do you worry the most about? What's the what's the hierarchy of worry? What we don't know, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but certainly China and Europe, I mean, we have a lot of Brexit talk this week, and so I think it's really about the surprise impact, and we've consistently been surprised over time, and so we want to be thoughtful of that and realize that treasuries are still a flight to quality asset. And like I said, we saw that in December. And so we want to be thoughtful, especially if we're going to be longer credit risk in this environment. Janelle, when you develop strategy, do you think a lot about if things start to go a little negative or a little bit more stressful in terms of uh, the financial markets and credit stress, do you assume that central banks around the world will step in? Because they certainly have shown that since the financial crisis, but even in less stressful situations, that they're going to come in and prop up whatever they need to. Well, I think the one thing the Fed doesn't like is it doesn't like volatility. And I think that's when we go back to the communication strategy, what was so challenged last year, that the Fed's commentary, the move-in rates, if we go back to September, is really what introduced volatility to the markets. And lower volatility is good for risk assets. It's good for credit spreads. It's good for equities. So we think this is what the, the Fed is targeting. And the balance sheet question, I feel like it comes up, you know, every time we have Alex Harris is our our kind of crack bond reporter. And every time she comes in, once I get her to stop talking about auctions, she will talk about the balance sheet and the role that that plays in sort of the Fed's toolbox. 30 seconds left. How do you look at what they are doing, what they should be doing? Yeah, I think the question really is, where do they end up? And, you know, I think at one point we thought it would be significantly lower. And now we're talking three to three and a half trillion. But I think it's also what is that made up of? So if we go back before mm-hmm. QE, it was T-bills, and, and that was really the dominant factor of the balance sheet. And we don't think you're going to get back to that, but I think it's what, how is it structured and how do they unwind it will matter a lot, um, especially as we think about market technicals. Right, exactly, because oh. the markets and investors will move on uh, on those things. Um, Janelle, thank you so much. Janelle Woodward, she's president of Fixed Income and Senior Portfolio Manager at BMO Global Asset Manager, based in Miami, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, right here in New York City. All right, well, gambling certainly uh, top of mind for many reasons, but especially on this March Madness yes. Monday, Carol, right after Selection Sunday, everybody piles in, they download their brackets, they start with all the bracketology. We heard earlier in the show about all the math that's going into it. Also a lot of money. And one person who knows about that, Jason Robbins, co-founder and chief executive officer of DraftKings here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. You were upstairs, I believe, with some of the other uh, notable folks for the Bloomberg's uh, Business of Sports Summit busy time of year for you. And this, I feel like, even busier given the size, the growing size of the gambling market now. This is always an exciting time of year, but being the first year we have legal sports betting, uh, this is an especially exciting time, and we're expecting a really big March Madness. Although there is about $10 billion that will be bet on March Madness this year, 97% of it is estimated to go to the illegal market, so there's still a lot of room to grow. You're like, Holy damn. <laughs> You're like, I got a bigger piece of that. We need more states to, to pass mobile sports betting, and that'll keep growing. What are you seeing in those states that we have seen it passed? What kind of activity are you seeing? 
Right now, New Jersey is the main one, and yeah. it's uh, absolutely exploding. I mean, it's every month, you know, is a new record being set for the state. And In terms and of individuals signing up or the amount of uh, volume money-wise? Everything. I mean, the whole thing is, is up, it seems, each month across all key metrics. Uh, certainly, football was a big lift for that, so it'll be interesting to see how March is. Um, but, you know, March Madness is bigger than the Super Bowl so in terms of betting volume, so it should be a good month as well. And so help us understand what's new this year, because obviously, especially given the legalization, uh, especially our friends in New Jersey are going to be looking around to, to see what uh, what their options are. What can they expect to see via DraftKings? So this is the first year we've had legal betting. So you can go and bet whether it's on the individual games or if you want to pick who you think is going to win the entire tournament or pick who you think will make the final four. All those options and more are available. Lots of different prop bets available. We'll have live betting once the games start as well. The other thing you can do now, though, is we've launched brackets. We have two versions on our fantasy app, which is available pretty much nationwide. You can go and play for free, um, and there's games you can win real money. There's one that has $64,000 in prizes that's totally free to enter. You can also create uh, private brackets to play with your friends for free. And then in New Jersey, on the sports betting app, uh, on the sportsbook app, we have both paid public and private brackets. So now for the first time, instead of everybody leaving $20 under their coworker's keyboard or whatever the method has been in the past, you can just go right on DraftKings, sign up your bracket, invite all your friends, and as long as they're in New Jersey, they can play for real money. Jason, how often, if you bring in somebody like to play for something for free, how often do they typically sign up and then stay with you? Free, uh, you know, it's interesting because it depends on what it is. A lot of people will come and try it out when you have free products that are the same game, like Daily Fantasy, and convert and stay at a very high rate. This is the first time, really, we've done something that's totally different, brackets. So it'll be interesting to see how that converts and how sticky those people are when you can't do brackets, if it's just a brackets audience. But it depends on what it is. Uh, however, what we try to do is just have, at all times, lots of free offerings. So however long somebody wants to be trying free stuff, there's always something to play. And if they ever get comfortable doing it for money, great. And if not, there's always something free. We kidded with Michael Barr, who is anchor of our Bloomberg business or co-anchor of our Bloomberg Business of Sports uh, weekly broadcast and podcast. And what's interesting is we talked about all the illegal bookies, you know, the Tonys and the Bennies that are out there. Uh, they, they, well, you got to make it about the Tonys <laughs> and the Bennies. Because that's actually yeah, – right. People who came up, you know, what is it? At least she didn't say the Jasons, Jason, you know. (laughs) What is it going to take to get those illegal, you know, folks that are gambling? As you mentioned, what is it you said? Was it 97% of the market is there? What's it going to take to get those folks to come to the legal side? More states passing laws that allow for legal betting and allow for it to be done in an environment where, you know, if it's too much taxation, too many other costs, then it's going to be impossible to compete with the illegal market. So doing it in a way that actually allows legal, uh, comp- you know, uh, legal companies to compete with the black market. Um, so, you know, New Jersey did that. There's a, a lot of different companies in there. The market's growing. Uh, taxes are... What's you know, the growth of the market that we're seeing in New Jersey? It depends on the month you look at, but it's been growing pretty much every month since uh, since it started. But ten percent, twenty percent. You know, it's hard to. I, I think with growth, you really want to look year over year in sports because it's so seasonal. So it's hard to compare because it'll be you know totally different set of sports in March versus February. 
Um, but, you know, there were some months in the NFL season where it was going up 40, 50 plus percent month to month. But, you know, really the test will be how big is it next year compared to the prior year because it's impossible mm-hmm. to take seasonality out of the, right. the analysis. All right, Jason Robbins, who's uh, who's winning your bracket? I have a feeling I know since you went to Duke <laughs> that you're going to have a hard time uh, not being a part of the crowd that's betting on Zion. Well, especially since they're the number one overall seed in the tournament. If this was a year, I was going to go with my, my favorite, uh, you know, my, my homer team, uh, if you will, and then that would be it. Uh, but it's not just me. It's the betting public. If you look at DraftKings numbers, Duke is the most popular pick yeah. to win the tournament for better. So not just me there. It's, uh, it's America as well, or at least New Jersey. <laughs> it's not say. just me. It's <laughs> America. Just That's Jason, Jason Robbins. Robbins. I'm my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So our next guest favoring growth stocks like so many. Time for the drive to the close with Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, joining us from San Francisco. Eric, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. I feel like everyone likes growth stocks. Tell me a little bit about your strategy and your thinking here. Yeah, well, there's not a lot working other than growth. <laughs> That's and, you fair. Know, in, a, in a low growth world with rates low and probably going to stay that way for a long time, that just tends to favor growth over value. So value will have its day, but uh, but for now, growth is kind of where it's at, and we're focused on the, the growth brands after a slowdown in Q4. You know, one of the themes, and I want to jump right in because you have so many good names that that you own and uh, and things that you are recommending or pointing out to us to to talk about. Uh, let's start with the news of the day, which is the the World Pay and uh, FIS deal. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little later on in the show as well. But what was your take on that, especially given the consolidation we've seen in the industry? Well, I think some of that is just catch up. You know the the MasterCards and the Visas and the PayPal's and the Squares and things are they're they're creating markets and dominating markets and that's forcing other companies to to pair up and and merge to try to get some scale. So I, I think this might have been a little more defensive as an offensive <laughs> as an offensive uh, move than anything. But we you know we own some of the names that I just mentioned uh, as as the leaders in those different different categories. But it's you know there's a, there's a massive global market. And nobody is going to just be the leader. So you have a lot of ways to win uh, on that one. But do you end- – oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's a really interesting point too because one of the stories that uh, Bloomberg wrote about this pointed out that you now have several players who are going to be processing a trillion dollars a Snacks. year in payments, multiple. So to your point, Eric, that this is not a, a monopoly type of situation, but you're going to need to have some big scale to compete. Absolutely, and there's and there's just so many different ways to to transact at this point. You know, you have Venmo, and you have a Cash App with Square, and then you have your traditional Visa and Mastercard and American Express. So, you know, that, that the the trend away from cash is certainly clear and ever present. Well, do you anticipate though a lot more consolidation? And what about some of the folks like Amazon and others who are increasingly looking at this space or getting involved? 
Well, I, I mean, I do. It's just, it's tough. I mean, even Apple's a good example. I mean, mm-hmm. with Apple Pay, in theory, they have such a large embedded network that that, that, they, that service should be thriving. But, the you know, there's only so many... Um, there's only so many merchant transactions and, and vendors to go around. So, I, I mean, I have, uh, I'm have i a big Apple user, but I don't really use Apple Pay that often. I, I tend to use uh, Venmo, and I like my MasterCard, Visa, and American Express. So that's enough for me. doesn't mean that they can't win because they have such a large installed base, but uh, eventually the, you, know, you just get a little saturated. So I think the, the Amazons of the world might, might struggle a little bit, but they also have an enormous network within the Amazon.com uh, and even booking on the travel side is getting into the payments so people can use their payment app versus using Visa MasterCard just to try to get more revenue. So it's, it's, it's definitely uh, going across industries. All right, Eric. So neither Carol nor I play video games, and yet somehow we are always talking about video so game true. companies and kind of loving it. We've got a great uh, analyst here uh, at Bloomberg, Matt Canterman, who sort of makes us sound smart. He helps us to sound smart because he's so smart about it. From an investor's perspective, how do you look at the Fortnite phenomenon and how do you look at how that plays across the various names in that space? Well, it's funny. I'm not. I'm not a, a gamer either. I mean, I think it, we're, we're not in the right demographic. But the the demographic that is playing games and is you know going to events, live events, to watch other games and competitions is is really early and it's it's growing fast. So you know, Fortnite obviously took everybody by storm and. And uh, in some ways, if you look at the other video gamers, the, the Take-Twos and the Activisions and the EA, all of those have, you know, they're 40% off now. So Fortnite has clearly taken its toll on a lot of those games. But, um, you know, that's just shed more light on the gaming industry. And, and I spent some time in looking at these things. I mean, this is, this is like Pixar. The animation in these things is, is unbelievable. It's not like, you know, the Asteroids and Donkey Kong back in the day. The, 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 the technology is, is only getting better. And so Fortnite blazed the trail, and now Apex Legends with EA is following through. Uh, I, have all, I, keep in, I keep in touch with a lot of my buddies with young, young kids, and yeah. the EA Apex Legends has, has really taken a bite out of Fortnite, if only just to, as a new game to try, but it sounds like they're gaining momentum. Can I just say that, you know, Eric's is like, we're not the demographic. It's like, I think he's calling me old. And then he said, Don Kong. It's like, that's about right. Yeah, that makes sense. Ouch. <laughs> um, but everybody also wants to go and see concerts and, and performances. Live Nation is another name that you like, which has done very well this year. It's up about 28%. Yeah, it's, and I still think it has a lot further to go. We just went to another concert and, you know, they're, they're packed. No matter where you go across the country or around the world, they are the largest provider, and they own end-to-end. So, I mean, it's not just that they have access to the, the venue. They get a piece of the food and beverage, and they're even getting into real estate now where, you know, transitioning old malls into venues where they're actually going to have some ownership stake in the actual venue. So they're, they're having a lot of ways to win while serving the experience. And, you know, Spotify does the same thing on the music and the podcasting side and video gaming on the, on the experience on the, on, the, on the gaming side. So we, we like to go out and experience things versus just go buy a product. All right, so we're speaking with Eric Clark uh, out in San Francisco with Rational Dynamic Dynamic Brands Fund. Uh, what are you avoiding at this point, Eric? Well, I, I, you know, when growth is slow, uh, you probably want to avoid things that struggle without pricing power. So we're, you know, we're staying away from from brands that just don't have a real differentiation between them and another brand, and and we're just staying we're staying uh, kind of moving upstream, focusing on growers 
that have pricing power, that have global, uh, you know, that have global interest across different demographics. That's the area at, you know, 10 years into the cycle, not everything's working. So you kind of have to go in through a narrow lane a little bit more, which doesn't feel good sometimes. But we have so many great names to choose from. We're, we're fine just focusing on that area and avoiding the, the names that just don't have any pricing power or real differentiated products. Anything recently, just quick, about 40 seconds that you've recently sold out of or pared back your position? Uh, we sold out of some of the the Mohawk. Mohawk was a it's the largest flooring mm-hmm. company in the world, and uh, we still like the housing sector, but it's still it's still laggard a little bit. There's not a ton of growth there, so that's been a an area that we've kind of reduced exposure. We still love Home Depot, but you know we had a great trade in in Mohawk, and we moved on. And there's there's other areas on the growth, technology, and consumer discretionary side that just look a lot better. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager with Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, joining us from San Francisco. Find more on their Twitter feed at The Brand Index. Good chat. Yeah, some really well-known names. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.